0: For so much of this retreat, we've been asking you to let go of the future and settle into the present. But now that we find ourselves on the last night of the retreat, I would like to talk about the road ahead. And as Thich Nhat Hanh said, was a very beloved teacher from the Vietnamese Buddhist tradition He said, the best way to take care of the future is to better take care of the present moment, which is one more way to uh, allow yourself to be recollected in the present, even as you face an understanding that um, time does flow on and anything that has a beginning has an ending. And since the retreat had a beginning, the retreat has an ending. But we still have time together. We still are in very precious company. And even though the thoughts might um, be gaining some ground because they seem more realistic, they're really, again, just thought. And just as that first night, the crickets were chirping and we came in with busy minds. The crickets are chirping and the minds are speeding up a little bit. And there is some appropriateness to having a mind that can conceive of the future. Um, It is functional. You just don't want to be imprisoned by it. So knowing how to unplug is very skillful, but so is knowing how to engage and how to um, anticipate some and move forward present moment by present moment with some understanding of what's to come So a retreat like this is profound, as many of you know. <clears throat> it's challenging and for a sacred few, it was rewarding. <laughs> 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 um, <clears throat> and yet, um, it ends up being you know, a discrete amount of time. And so what this retreat um, was about, you can see. You can see that it was a lot about a wandering mind welcoming it back home. You might get distracted, welcoming it back home, yet over the course of the days, a sinking further in, further into your body, more opening to your heart, more capacity to work with your mind. And for me, this is the developing of a balanced self-intimacy, that there's some balance in the mind and a capacity to open up to what's happening. But that balance isn't necessarily uh, withdrawal from oneself, you actually out of that balance can more deeply feel into yourself, feel into your body, feel into your heart, feel into your mind. And then because of the time you've spent here, you have momentum, a momentum of mindfulness, momentum of samadhi, a, me- momentum, of un- a momentum of understanding. And that's the momentum you can keep uh, supporting as you uh, carry on, when I was in um, when I was in Burma, I had the opportunity to ordain as a monk, and um, <clears throat> one of the most powerful things about ordaining as a monk is that you not only wear your practice on the inside but you wear it on the outside, so you can 't really um, pretend that you 're not. Um, on your path as you walk out of the the monastery and you walk through the village, you're kind of held to the same um, standard, whether you're in a monastery or out. As a layperson, you can kind of walk around and look like you're shopping, even though you're feeling really weird. (laughs) If you happen to be running an errand from a monastery, you just look like a slightly floaty, strange layperson. But when you actually ordain, they they expect no less of you outside of the monastery as they do inside the monastery. And it's amazing to be held to such a high standard by your culture, and then internally as well, even though the conditions have shifted. So whether I was in downtown Yangon, uh, trying to cash up little um, funds to take care of a visa, or um, trying to find candles or whatever I was trying to do, or I was in the monastery, to these Burmese teachers, it made absolutely no difference. And if you thought there was a difference, you'd be quite scolded. So we have protective conditions. I don't necessarily want this to go on in a direction of making you nervous, but (laughs) the conditions are slightly less um, protective when we leave here, but the game is still the same. The game is still the same. And so what if, the world where spirit rock, and not different, not like all of a sudden there's deer everywhere and (laughs) (laughs) somebody somewhere is cooking for you. But you have five senses, you have emotion and thought, and you have a breath. And you've had a breath since you were born, and you'll have a breath since you'll die. You've had a body since you've been born, you'll have a body since you'll die. You have a home base, and you always have had it. I'm just thinking of, um, the Wizard of Oz right now. <laughs> you could always go home. Um, you always had the power within. <clears throat> and, you, and you have, you have. We haven't done any, we haven't brought something from some other planet to give you. You've discovered a breath, a body, but an ability to deepen your intimacy. And the challenge with that is that you have to let pleasant things come and go And you have to be willing to have some intimacy with unpleasant things. That's the only pay of feeling free, of actually developing freedom, is a willingness to kind of let pleasure be there and let it pass as the conditions change. And if you have some discomfort or pain coming your way, you can modify it, but not in a way that tightens you or has you reject what's happening in the present. If you can meet those two challenges, you get to be free. So this retreat happens in the context of your whole life. And your whole life is an opportunity to further awaken. Meditation happens as an aspect of a whole path. And in this particular tradition we've taken over this gem this beautiful gem of mindfulness and samadhi and jhanas <clears throat> and we give when we give some support to it with the rest of the path but really what we've done beautifully is brought over this meditative capacity and built this beautiful retreat center to give us a chance to feel that but that diamond happens within the context of a whole path. And that's what we get to live both on retreat and off retreat, so I'd like to talk about the whole path. Every year, for the last couple of years, I've been leading a pilgrimage to Burma. And the reason I wanna do that is, again, I want people to see what a whole path and a culture that understands the whole path looks like. Not that Burma is perfect. They have a pretty horrible government. They're people just like you and I. But what they honor culturally is this work. And so if you go over to Burma as a tourist, they're very kind to you. But if you go over as a meditator, you're pretty much, um, you're an ambassador of their highest values, walking through their culture. And their culture reflects these values. So every morning as people wake up, many people, the first thing they'll do is <clears throat> gather themselves so they can make an offering to the monks and nuns. And the monks and nuns leave their monastery so that even if you're in the busyness of uh, an urban city or you're in some small village, you get a monastic retreat center contact. Mm-hmm. And that's how you start the day. You start the day recognizing your highest priorities and you let other things fill in after that. So they cook rice um, for the monks, offer food to the nuns. They walk through, they have this beautiful exchange right around uh, sunrise. And then everybody goes about their day. In the middle of the capital of of Yangon or Rangoon, there are many, these beautiful shrines, and traffic is built up around them so they become roundabouts, um, these really old pagodas. And you can be walking in the middle of life-threatening traffic trying to get to one of these uh, stupas. You walk in and all of a sudden it's an oasis right in the middle of this busy town. And you see people very deep in meditation. And you walk around and they're still there and you walk around and they're still there. This is not a little pit stop for them, like this is actually their retreat center in the middle of their busy, crazy, uh, chaotic city. There are people in deep, deep, deep states of meditation, deep, deep, deep states of jhana, deep states of realization, sitting there and all the honking and beeping of the cars going around them. So they've done it, they've taken the challenge and they've gotten there. They've gotten to a place where they can sit in the middle of their crazy uh, capital, and they settle down like we do, and they find this deep release. So, they're uh, showing what's, what's possible. So, when I take people on pilgrimage, we do visit monasteries. This is much like a monastery. So, it's not you know it's interesting to see the monasteries in practice there, but. Those monsters are held by a culture. They're held by the local villages. There's a whole larger context for them. There's a whole larger context for you all as well for what this practice can open up and what it can bring as you flow forward. There is was a, a very simple, short discourse. Um, this one person comes to the Buddha and they don't say this, but you can almost imagine him coming with just the sense of overwhelm. And he said, tangled within, tangled without, who can untangle this mess? And the Buddha says, someone who knows about right action. Someone who knows about wise meditation. Someone who's cultivated understanding. They can untangle the tangles within And they can untangle the tangles without. These tangles are, as I've been using a more colloquial uh, phrase, the peas. (laughs) 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 The peas in the mattress and the uh, glaciers breaking off into the ocean. Because when you look down at them, the little hard, dry pea, it feels like a solid object. It's that pain in your shoulder or it's, You'll, you'll never resolve a certain argument with your parents or whatever that, that nasty part of your life is. But it's actually a construction. Before I got into the Dharma, I was um, a, physis- a physicist. And what they saw when they looked at matter, they kept breaking it down. They found these like, tiny little building blocks of protons and neutrons and electrons. And they thought, okay, these are the tiny little billiard balls that make up all of matter, because it's it's hard. So so there must be something hard down there. And then as they've gone further, they've seen that there is nothing hard about a proton. There is nothing hard about an electron as far as it being solid. It's actually so ephemeral, it hardly even exists. But through its patterns, it appears hard. So these patterns in us, especially the ones that we're most frustrated by, appear hard, but they're a tangle, they're a tangled knot, and they can be untangled. And this is what the Buddha laid out in his Four Noble Truths. And the fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path contains the meditation work that we've been doing, but it's a larger uh, vehicle. It's a larger path that we can walk. It's held within the Four Noble Truths. Richard talked about the, um, the three characteristics that we find in all all experience. He said that um, as he unpacked those three characteristics, there's a Nietzsche that things constantly change and that when you look at them, they're fairly ephemeral. Thoughts are really ephemeral. The more intimacy you get with any particular thing, the more you can see it's made up of smaller things and each smaller thing is arising and passing and changing very quickly. So an hour of grief is many, many thoughts, many, many waves of emotion. And if you're more intimate with it, you can see each little wave is made up of tiny little wavelets, and each little thought is made of tiny little thoughts, and each image of grief that arises is many images and many things. And so as you deepen your intimacy, a becomes more and more obvious. As a becomes more obvious, then the insight into dukkha the insight and the fact that because things change, they're just not reliable. And so pleasure is what it is. It's just not a place to build a home on a particular uh, pleasant event. You experience it and let it go. That's the good side. The bad side is when you struggle and try to hold on to things or resist what you have. The dukkha gets very strong and unbearable. But if you can do as I uh, suggested earlier, the price of your freedom is enjoying your pleasure and not clinging to it. And solving your pain, but not resisting it, not fighting and not contracting against it. And then this third characteristic that when you're really intimate with yourself, you can't really find a self there to be intimate with. You don't find a noun in you. Because the Nietzsche is so pervasive Because everything's so changing, there's really nothing about you that you can claim and try to put a handle on or try to own. As you deepen your intimacy, these three characteristics become more and more obvious. It's not a forced interpretation. Yet if you're not looking very closely at yourself your life, things do appear permanent. It really is worth uh, obsessing about some momentary pleasure. And when you have it, you probably use that time to obsess about some other momentary pleasure. And you can confuse yourself that way. And if you don't look at yourself closely, you don't seem to change much. So deeper self-intimacy reveals these three characteristics. That's, the, that's close to the Buddha's first noble truth. Things change. There is Within that change, limited pleasure, within that changing world, pain arises. It gets worse because of the, first, the second noble truth, which is where we crave for what we don't have. We really fight reality. And we try to cling to certain circumstances that we think are a better reality. We try to make concrete what cannot be made concrete. And there's a release. There's a release of those, and that's the third noble truth. There is actually the experience of releasing that struggle. And then the way to do this deep release, the way to untangle these tangles, is the fourth noble truth, which is the path. The Eightfold Path is sometimes given as a list and people sometimes try hard to make sense of why the list is in that order. And there's a way of doing that which is satisfying. But the Eightfold Path is sometimes also pictured as an eight-spoke wheel. And so even old um, Buddhist sculptures and paintings have an eight-spoke wheel. All eight spokes support the wheel and the wheel rolls down the path. So it's not that one is more important than the other, but all eight need to be strong. But in giving it, I'll sort of walk through the one classical interpretation where you can give it in its pieces. So often the list begins with whatever understanding you have, whatever your conviction is right now, Whatever your deepest wisdom is about where um, happiness comes from and what freedom is like. And if you were to try on that reflection about anicca, dukkha, and anatta, this changing nature, the limits of pleasure in a changing uh, world, never changing world, and in the not so contracted, static self, a self that's constantly evolving. the uh, right view, right understanding is the first of the uh, eightfold path. It's the first fold. And so it organizes around the Four Noble Truths and understanding them, understanding these qualities of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, understanding that there is this dukkha nature, and again... It can be something that's unpleasant on the one hand, or just that pleasure is limited on the other. So we all have some degree of understanding that. As Richard gave that example, ask anybody, do things change? And they'll say yes. And then they turn and see their car is rusted and they're frustrated. It's like, well, you know things are gonna change, you know metal rusts, so why are you frustrated? Well, I didn't want it to happen to me. <clears throat> so it's the deepening in your ability to actually live in accord with these truths that leads to freedom. So we have the understanding, but we have to, it has to be more experiential. We have to live from them. The second fold is with that understanding, where do we head? How do we apply that understanding? How do we live from that understanding? And there are three guiding principles in this right intention. Right intention is sort of how the wisdom of understanding begins to guide us. And there are three, uh, three guiding principles in right intention. So <clears throat> if your mind gets exhausted by there being lists and then embedded lists within lists, <laughs> you can let this flow over you uh, like a river. Uh, you can secretly tune into that cricket And thank God it was there. Or let any part of this wash in through you and see, again, if you just get the impression of it. um, That's one thing. You also might walk away with uh, the tangible pieces. And it's being recorded if you wanted to review it later. So that's as much as I can save you from Mm -hmm. going through this. The guiding in right intention, which is a second fold, is There are three guides. One is about renunciation. One is about increasing our loving capacity. And one is about really letting go of anything that causes harm. And these are to counteract our our mind's capacities to be greedy and craving and uh, overly seeking pleasure. So learning to renounce things. Renounce is too much of a push away Really, we're just letting things be. This is a very nice bell right here. I don't have a bell like this at home. But I'm gonna let this bell be. And me and this bell, we're gonna share a space. But I don't need to own it. I don't need to covet it. I don't need to think about how I can steal it from Spirit Rock. (laughs) I can actually use the beauty of this bell to inspire myself. I would like to come upon a bell like that myself one day. But I don't have to kind of try to own this bell. I can let it be. So letting pleasure be, letting beautiful things be and opening a a relationship to them that doesn't involve owning or attaching or affixing, but you can be plenty intimate with something beautiful, something uh, pleasant. In that intimacy, there's a latching on that usually causes the trouble. So renunciation, uh, relinquishing that owning urge and coming into a relationship that doesn't necessarily have a a fixed ownership of yourself or other things. Learning to let go of and be free of the mind's contractions when it is angry or resentful, and not reaffirming your resentment of other people, not reaffirming your negative relationship to yourself, letting go of ill will, See if you can actually let it go and in its place, cultivate positive rapport with yourself and others. So taking the wisdom of your understanding and using that to support a movement of loving kindness and a relinquishing of patterns of ill will. And as you're letting go of ill will, also look at how your actions, starting usually from the inside as you're thinking about something and feeling passionate about something that becomes action, that you really guard against harm, that you not cause harm. So using this vast understanding of that all things change, there's momentary satisfaction, adjusting yourself that way, and then moving into how you want to respond to your environment, being guided by, rather than attaching to pleasant things, letting them be. Rather than <clears throat> hardening around places where you feel resentful, softening that and see if you can have compassion instead. And where there might be a sort of a neglect or you're tuning out on people, see if instead you can cultivate a caring attitude as these intentions move into actual actions. So more than just the desire to move forward, the desire to feel love, the desire to let go of this inner hatred or resentment that might be cultivating. <clears throat> Coming into action. And so this is what a lot of people will be doing as we leave the retreat center. There's gonna be a lot of activity Sitting here is an activity, walking is an activity, and you've been doing that. But all through the day, you're going to be involved in many different activities. And so this is how the path becomes quite broad as you actually move through your life, considering the actions you're taking and seeing if they're in accord with your wisdom, if they're in accord with love, if they're in accord with non-harming, and if they're in accord with a uh, non-fixation on pleasure. <clears throat> so in coming in, there are micro lists within the larger list. And these, these pull out the precepts that we took on the first night. And so as we consider our actions, if we were to consider the precepts, that's a lot of the reflection that you'll have as you move through the world. So again, as a monk, um, I was asked to hold uh, 227 precepts. And each precept had many different conditions depending on the season and the context in them. And it was overwhelming. And and as soon as I ordained and realized what had happened, I wondered if there was a way of taking a step back or maybe I could wait a little longer, study this more. Um, Because there's a whole labyrinth and it takes a while to really understand them. But each one heightens your sensitivity to how you might be causing harm or how you could be more considerate. And so as you feel into any particular uh, precept, especially as you're walking out of the monastery and they all start kicking in, because many of them are kind of there. As you're sitting in meditation, you're following all 227. <laughs> so it makes you want to be very still. And like, okay, I mean, but as soon as you move out of the monastery, there's 227 things you're trying to track. Um, and <clears throat> it's interesting to try, it, like one, one example, um, you're not allowed to take money. And in Burma, um, that's softened in some monasteries over, over the time, so people, not knowing will come up and try to offer you money, and it's an act of kindness to do that. But in the monasteries I trained in, they were trying to their best to uh, follow the Buddha's teachings to, um, to a high degree. And so someone might put money on your bowl, and you don't want to offend them, but you cannot accept it. And so the guideline is to uh, take your bowl and put it straight down on the ground, smiling, and standing there until somebody figures out what's going on. (laughs) And you sit there in this sort of awkwardness. And at first it's like, God, you just took the money I could hand to somebody. It'd just be done. But you're sitting there, and the whole time you could just be cooking in this confusion. But many things start coming into play. You don't want to offend the person because their act is kindness. You definitely cannot accept it. And so you sit there kind of, in this awkward moment, um, and luckily in Burma, <clears throat> they know about these things because you're held in cultural context. And so first person starts looking like, they look back at you like, you're from another country, you don't understand, <laughs> Like, why are you doing this? And then this light bulb goes off in their mind like, oh, you are practicing, practicing this precept. Oh my God, if you're practicing this precept, you're really trying to follow the Buddhist teachings. Oh my God, this is amazing. And this excitement comes up in them. And they take the money back and they look around and they try to find the person who's uh, taking care of you and they give the money to them. And so if you can actually sweat out that awkward moment, <coughs> there's, <laughs> there's a rapport there that you have to get the balance right. You know, No ill will, uh, respect, you can't own this thing you can't solve it very quickly and some kind of sweep it under the rug. You, you face this encounter. And there are many like that, many guidances like that, that you have to kind of figure out your best way through. And they heighten the sense of um, cultural wisdom about how to be out in the world in a way that really has a, uh, gives a strong integrity to how you're participating. Um, so we have <clears throat> uh, five precepts, and in the Eightfold Path, they only mention four of them. <laughs> so the, um, the precept on, on alcohol and drug use is very suggestive when you're doing a deep training in meditation, but out in daily life, it doesn't come up mentioned in the Eightfold Path. So it's just a very important precept when we're doing this level of, of Uh, mental training and heart training and then you can uh, treat that wisely as you want um, out in daily life but in terms of the Eightfold Path it doesn't it doesn't come up but the other four do so one of the whole fact one of the whole folds of the Eightfold Path is just on speech and communication how many of you wish you could unsend an email (laughs) (laughs) that you sent because it felt so good to dump Whatever you were dumping out on a, out on text and press send, and then realize, oh my god, that went out. So <coughs> not getting a lot of laughter, so maybe that's not like a big thing for you guys. But I definitely have some email things that like it felt good in the moment and it didn't play out well. And from that, I now have a precept check in my in my mind. Like, do I want to put this in motion? Oh, yeah, I definitely want to put like, hmm. <laughs> Do you really want to put this in motion, this energy, this? And if I wait a day, especially on an angry email or something like that, I can see all the constructions that felt really good at the time, but they're harmful. And I can actually write something much more skillful if I give it a little time. But if I, that's the sort of the waited out one. The other is just checking into your heart. and Is it open and flowing? And are you really considering yourself and the other being well before you send that communication? There's a lot in how we relate and how we build rapport with each other through body language, through spoken word, through um, written language. There's a lot about communication. And if we up our awareness of it, you'll find that if you dedicate yourself to... These wise actions, the next time you come on a retreat, there's not as many peas on the mattress. <laughs> there's not as many places of frustration, not as many um, scalded places in you where something happened between you and another person, and there's some th- something left undone, something left incomplete, something that was said harsh you might need to apologize for, something maybe not said that could have been said. So it's not just about being silent when you're off retreat. Not harming other living beings and seeing what that's like to have that as a high priority. When I was um, in the monastery, we used to catch the mosquitoes in a clear cup at night, right at sunset, because they would fly out of the windows, and we'd try to catch two or three. If you get four in a cup at once before you took it at the door and threw them out, that was high skill. And <laughs> so you can make a little game out of it if you want. <clears throat> but, you know, they're going to hurt you. And you might accidentally hurt them, so it's just better if you have them outside your cabin. You have them outside your cabin. And then when, one time when I was running errands, I went with a friend of mine, and he hadn't an ordained, but he had this practice as well, and we slept in the same um, hotel room. And at the same time that I heard the buzzing in my ear, he flicked on the light, and he was sort of waving a mosquito off his head. And <clears throat> without a word, we both dug around found our little plastic cups, went around, caught about You know, 25 mosquitoes, tossed them out of the room, and went to bed. And when I went to bed, I was like, I'm with an amazing human. I'm with a guy who's willing to do this at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he's willing to train himself so that his sensitivity, even to the adversity of mosquitoes, is unquestioned. And then as I began to tune into him, because he's already a friend, I noticed how he interacted with people out in the street. I noticed when it came to any type of money exchange, because he was a layperson, the kindness, the eye contact, the consideration. I was like, I'm with a holy person. and He's just a friend that, you know, I thought he was a great guy, but um, I was looking at the consciousness he had as he moved through the world, motivated by love, motivated by non-harming, and motivated by non-greed. And so that actually manifested out in his actions. And so the the road ahead is, uh, hopefully you'll be in your body, and hopefully you'll be feeling your breath, and hopefully you'll be in the present moment. But you'll be guided by compassionate action. And you can just bring your harming to an end, that's beautiful, but you can also bring your love to a more passionate extent your generosity, your care for others. That's also the opening of the heart, the opening of the mind. The increased intimacy is not just in your own body, but you become more intimate with your environment. I worked in a homeless shelter for a number of years. When I realized that one of the worst things about being homeless, besides the the physical challenges of being cold or uh, sleeping out in the rain, was that the rest of society Um, wouldn't look at you. If they did, it was always with some type of um, confusion and pain to even glance in your direction. And so now, um, when I was living in San Francisco, there are many homeless people and I don't have a solution, but they're definitely people I care about. And and I have a friend who lives um, uh, up north of here And she said, it's just so wearing for her to come into the city because she can't stand to see the homeless people, it breaks her heart. And my response to her is, well, they're just as homeless whether you come down or not. (laughs) (laughs) So if you could come down and have your heart broken, at least somebody had a heartbreak over the fact that that you were homeless or they were homeless. And someone actually felt some of the pain you're in And I don't have a solution for homelessness, but I'm willing to feel the pain and acknowledge the pain that they're in. And it's amazing how human that makes them and how much of their own humanity homeless people regain when they're not swept off stage because it's awkward. When I first started working in the homeless shelter, Um, it was about the same time I started doing uh, 10-day retreats like this, or week-long, or 10-day retreats. And so, I would have to go to work tomorrow. (laughs) I'd have to go right in there. I'm like, oh my God, I spent all this time, you know, opening up and kind of being really intimate. But I have to go to this intense shelter where the phones are ringing, and the police are bringing someone to the door, and all this family trouble, and... People are in really rough shape, you know, teenagers who are homeless. But I found that when I would go in, I, would, I could actually be powerful enough to be vulnerable enough to look someone in the eye. And that that capacity evaporated over time because I would protect myself more. And by protecting myself more, I would talk to people, but there'd be a little bit more social armoring up. And I would go in, fresh-off retreat, I definitely would feel a lot. It would be overwhelming. The phone, the kids, the police, all that. Really overwhelming. But I would have a type of momentum that could hold me in that overwhelm. And what I found is that the kids in the shelter, when they would come in, they would trust me really quick. And I could actually get to a level of rapport with them without even trying within minutes because I was just exuding a sense of like, Okay, this guy is not, <laughs> this guy is such a, you know, floating, open being that I don't fear him. He's a little odd, but, you know, he's, he's got no harm. There's nothing about him that's harmful. And so I would watch kids really de escalate around me. And I could have beautiful conversations with them. And then from that, we could actually discover that the, parent, the, the adult they trusted most was some aunt in another county. And we could find solutions really quickly because there was that bridge of connection. And it was just because I didn't have so much ego armoring up. So it's both a vulnerability and it's actually a type of power to be out in the world uh, with this openness, with this ability to be connected. So the, <clears throat> the grouping of the right action, the sila, it's the three of the folds go under this heading of Sila, which means the uh, moral or ethical action. Our right speech. Uh, the precepts of non-harming, um, not stealing, and not harming through sexuality. And then the third in that is right livelihood. So if you look at the uh, what you do with your week and how you take care of yourself in terms of your outer life, maybe your job or your vocation, if you're a student, that has a big impact over the state of your heart and mind. So when I was a physicist, um, I was very intellectual and I didn't spend a lot of time um, exploring my heart. So when I would go on retreat, I would basically think for 10 days (laughs) because that's the lifestyle I come from. And after 10 days, it would slow down, and I would find my body and find my heart towards the end of the retreat. And it wasn't a bad lifestyle, but the patterns I came into the retreat with reflected the patterns of my lifestyle. And so if you look at how you're living back home, that is somewhat of a reflection over the patterns you're going to be cultivating. And not all of us have uh, uh, as much choice as we'd like over living the lifestyle we'd like, but we do have some. So thinking about your livelihood, thinking about how you go about your day, how you go about your week, how you go about your month, and what you're cultivating inside and outside in that form of livelihood. It starts off livelihood of just mainly about income, but as you explore it, it becomes your whole way of being. Do you drive a car, take bus, or bicycle, or do you walk? That's a type of livelihood issue. And do you know your neighbors? That's a kind of communal livelihood. How are you taking care of yourself? What are your patterns? So the first two folds I mentioned are considered the wisdom folds, and they're in the wisdom group, that's right view and right understanding. I'm sorry, right right view and right intention. The next three were (coughs) speech, uh, wise action of those other three precepts and then livelihood. And then the next three are considered more in the realm of meditation. And to um, have a good daily practice, but also to be mindful and present as you go about your life, is a great boon to how you move forward. One of the folds in this meditative path is Keep reflecting on what's happening in your heart, what's happening in your mind, and do you think it's skillful? And if it's not, how could you shift your mind, shift your heart, if what's happening there is not skillful? Do you need to settle in and understand things better? Why am I angry, for example? Or can you put the anger down for a moment and open something else up in its place? Can you substitute something instead of the anger or the fear? if something unskillful is arising? Or can you bring about beautiful states of heart and mind, just like we've done here, when I say open up to a sense of well-being? Can you open that up all through your day, when you're out and about, driving, going to work, coming home? Can you keep cultivating that? The seventh fold or the eighth fold Path is mindfulness, and we've talked a lot about that experience a lot about that. Just being more and more intimate with things as they are, being more and more intimate with what it's like to be inside your body, being more and more intimate with what it's like to feel your emotions, understand your mental states, understand the content of your thoughts. You want to Uh, deepen and broaden your self-intimacy so that you feel all that's going on. And from that feeling, if there's areas of pain, you'll want to address them. It's much better than being numb or not looking. So increasing your capacity to be mindful in your everyday life. That one factor that uh, Richard mentioned when he mentioned um, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. If your experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's really worth noticing that. Because if it's pleasant, you're probably getting, you, you stand the chance of getting hung up in attachment. If it's unpleasant, you probably will get hung up in rejecting it somehow. And if it's neutral, you'll probably get hung up by getting bored <coughs> or checking out. <clears throat> so it's also something to check as you go through your day. If you've heard me give um, a talk like this before, there was a time in a cafe where I was really getting hung up on a cookie. And it was a beautiful day in the the cafe, but they changed brands of cookie. And because I actually was tracking what was going on, I was sifting through my experience. I was able to find the hook that was destroying my, my ease of being that afternoon was that this chocolate chip cookie wasn't the same brand that I had been enjoying before without knowing it I attached to it. But that attachment was really starting to agitate me because I couldn't deal with this new cookie. <laughs> 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 <coughs> and this is after a year of being a monk in Burma with you know battling mosquitoes and um, I almost went down over a cookie. So <laughs> it happens. It happens. And the eighth fold the Eightfold Path is deepening and honoring your samadhi, deepening and honoring your ability to be absorbed. And out in daily life you may or may not be able to be absorbed in your breath, but if you can take time to recognize the beauty that is around you, that's a good place to do moments of, of absorption. And it's not this meditative absorption that you can get maybe on a retreat. But don't just sort of fly by a beautiful sunset. Don't fly by the flowers in your neighborhood. Don't fly by the meal you're eating. Stop and actually receive it. It's really nourishing, not just the food in your body, but taking care of yourself. So finding this type of um, gathering, how to gather yourself out in the hecticness of everyday life it's it's important for your nervous system. It's important for your body. It's important for your mind. Periods of meditation at at home are really important as well. You can do that. You'll find you can do it throughout the day if you have a good daily practice. But this is the road ahead. <clears throat> this is sort of what we get to do, and <clears throat> I have. Um, a friend mm-hmm. tell me once, and I said, you know, I get sometimes nervous when I'm uh, going to do public speaking. And she said, um, take all that energy and use it for the talk. And I was like, well, I usually I'm trying to calm the energy down so I can give the talk. And she said, no, but then it's a flat talk. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting all of this energy revving so that you can actually share it. <clears throat> and so if you have any type of energy that feels like, anxiety or apprehension about the great road ahead as you uh, move on from the retreat. Use that energy as, a, as that's what's bubbling up in you to meet that challenge. And you don't meet it by toughening up, you meet it by the courage to be vulnerable and connected and take each moment, moment by moment, breath by breath. And then the world is your sacred retreat center And it's as sacred as you can understand it. This is not the sacred place and the other place, whatever, is non-sacred. It's one of the beauties, when people held me to that high standard of being a monk, the benefit was I didn't get sloppy. And by not being sloppy, there wasn't a place that wasn't truly profound to be. And I had the extra challenge of disrobing for health reasons, and then the world wasn't holding me to this high standard, but I hold me to that high standard because I want to be free. So if you want to be free, if you want to untangle your tangles, hold yourself to your highest standard, not perfectionism, but deepening your self-intimacy and not resisting the challenges that come, not clinging to the pleasures that you have. But letting them flow by, and then finding this freedom that deepens and expands, until it's finally complete. The road ahead actually leads to a full completion of your freedom, and it's laid out in these teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Path. So, with that. I offer you my greatest heart's blessing. Let's sit for a moment, let this settle. Be bold with your tenderness.